0: Our Old Testament lesson comes from Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23. Hear now the word of our God from Leviticus chapter 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, you shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation, you shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as firstfruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish and one bull from the herd or in two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day, you shall hold a holy convocation, you shall not do any ordinary work, it is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people, and whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work, it is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves." On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening shall you keep your Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seven month, and for seven days, is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation, and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings each on its proper day, besides the Lord's sabbaths and besides your gifts and besides all your vow offerings and besides all your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm leaves, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Paul will say in Colossians that the the festivals, the new moons, and the Sabbaths we're a shadow of the things to come. Now, what does it mean, shadows? How do you get a shadow? Well, in order for you to have a shadow, there needs to be a source of light, and there needs to be a body that casts a shadow. And so that's the way the shadows work. Paul will say that Christ is the substance, literally the body, that casts the shadows. So all of these feasts that we just heard about were shadows crossed, basically formed by the body of Christ, cast by the body of Christ with the eschatological light, with the light of the eschaton, the light of the new creation shining back through history at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ as it showed in the Old Testament, these shadows that they saw and understood it various, in various ways, at various levels. But, but, but we see this, uh, br- I'll just mention it briefly here. I'll, I'll also mention that after we finish the Judges series on Sunday evenings, we're going to go to Leviticus. So when you, if you want to hear the details of all this, we'll be doing this in the evening service next. But, but verses 4 through 8 talk about the Passover, which was a reminder of their redemption from Egypt, which was a shadow of how Christ delivers us from slavery to sin and death verses 9 to 14 lay out the feast of first fruits which was connected to the passover where they they gave the first fruits to God which was a shadow of how Christ himself is the first fruits of salvation and we are the harvest which then verses 15 to 22 deal with the feast of weeks of pentecost the a thanksgiving for the harvest that God provided The shadow of the Pentecost that came when our Lord Jesus Christ poured out his Holy Spirit, the completion of Christ's death and resurrection, resulting in the gift of the Holy Spirit to his people. So, even so, as Pentecost is the completion of Passover, so also the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the completion of Christ's death and resurrection. We're not merely redeemed from bondage to sin and death we also receive the inheritance of Christ. Now, Then verses 23 to 25 describe the Feast of Trumpets. Now, okay, that, that one probably sounded a little weird. A memorial of blowing trumpets. Okay, what, what sort of feast is that? Well, every month on the first of the month, there was to be a new moon feast. Israel had a lunar months, which always began with the new moon. That's where we get our word month from. But the new moon feast for the beginning of the seventh month was different. Because the seventh month was the most important month of the year for Israel. Why? Well, all of the rest of the feasts happen in the seventh month. There was the Day of Atonement on the tenth day of the seventh month. A shadow of how Christ would offer the perfect sacrifice. And the the Feast of Booths was a, it's called a seven-day feast, and yet the assemblies are on the first day and the eighth day. That's, That's... actually a really important point for understanding old testament worship but that's but it, it it's a shadow of how Christ would provide the completion of our inheritance and all of these were shadows of Christ which means that they were good and holy in their own day in their own way Israel was in, was being faithful in observing them but because they've been fulfilled in Christ that's why Paul will say let no one judge you with respect to these things. Uh, which means, by the way, if people want to observe them, that's okay. If people don't want to observe them, that's okay. It's not like, oh, you can't celebrate the Feast of Booths anymore. It, Paul's point is, let no one judge you with respect to these things. They're, sh- they're, they're shadows. That means they don't, they're, not, they're not the body that casts the shadow. Christ is. Our New Testament lesson comes from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 will start in verse 6. Hear now the word of our God from Colossians 2, starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Now, in order to understand what Paul's talking about when he when he tells us about who we are in Christ, I, I, I want to give you a, uh, a little way of thinking about Paul's way of thinking about persons. Um, so, And for this, you're going you're, uh, you're to have to watch closely because Paul thinks of us as having the, sort of three concentric circles describe the human person. Uh, he talks about sometimes the, the inner man, the inner self, Uh, As this is sort of the core of who you are, and that's he sometimes uses the language of the heart or the mind or the the, inner man, all these sorts of different different words he uses. But it's this basic center of who you are. Then there's the second circle, which he oftentimes refers to as the flesh. Flesh is not exactly the same as body. I mean, flesh does mean meat, so I mean it's it it's a very bodily word but the flesh refers to those drives desires that that are part of of our our sort of our existence in the flesh and that's where so that's the and that's where the second circle now the third circle for paul is the thoughts words and deeds the the, the things the, the things that you sort of how people see you, and some some ways how you see yourself, but that's the sort of the exter, exterior of your life. Now, the way Paul thinks about persons is that we all, by virtue of being in Adam, we all have a, have a problem at the very core of who we are. Namely, we're dead in our sins. Our problem is that we are corrupt and we don't love god we don't love others that's i mean we have a problem at the very core of our being and so it's not surprising that our flesh is equally corrupt and it's not surprising that this manifests itself in our outward deeds and thoughts and words but this is where for paul in christ everything is changed and so this is, okay so you got your, you got your first circle over here now picture of the cross right in the middle of this of this picture i put, i should have put it in your in your bulletins but then you'd be looking down at your bulletins and not looking at me so so that's where so but i want you to see that in christ christ is the center of everything and christ is the center of everything and so now in christ this is where paul will say I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or like what he'll say here in a few verses in, in chapter 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. That means what Paul's talking about is that core of who you are is new. The old man is dead. Not just sort of mostly dead or partly dead. You know, but dead, dead. The old man is dead. That's no longer who you are. You have been made alive in Christ Jesus. That is now who you are in Christ. Now, you might wonder, then, why do I still have all of these problems? In uh, I keep sinning. I keep. Well, the flesh is still the same flesh. At least, I have yet to meet a person who uh, all of their their body was completely replaced. Um, when they became a Christian, <laughs> because when Paul talks about the flesh, sometimes I think in our modern translations when like the NIV translated flesh as the sinful nature, it missed the point of flesh because flesh is is, is a very bodily term, and for Paul, the point of flesh is, 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 is not that it 's sort of inherently sinful it 's inherently weak. Christ after all, came in the flesh that't mean doesn 't mean that Christ was sinful. But it means that he took our weakness. He came in our flesh. And that's where our flesh, the problem with our flesh, is that our flesh, and this is the the language Paul will use in chapter 3, and I'm giving you the prelude here because uh, it's really important for understanding what Paul's doing now, so I I can't wait until next week to tell you this. But what what Paul's going to say, basically, is he'll talk about putting off, taking off the clothing that belonged to the old man. That's, that's the way that Paul thinks about that the flesh is, is not fundamentally who you are. The flesh is so does that, what's left of the old man who is now dead. And that's where the way Paul would, I mean, if, per, uh, to paraphrase Paul, the flesh is the sort of the wardrobe of the old man that's still stinking up the place. And so when Paul t- talks about restraining the indulgence of the flesh... Because Paul Paul recognizes I I still am in the flesh. That, and that's a problem, because that's not that's not who I am anymore, but that's the, the the warfare image of the flesh and the spirit that Paul will use is because there is still this battle. But this is where sometimes when you hear about the the, the the sort of the battle sometimes people will talk about the battle between the old man and the new man. For the Christian, it's not the old man fighting the new man. The old man is dead. He's not fighting anymore. You have died with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. That inner core of who you are has been united to Christ, and therefore, your old man is dead. Now, the warfare you're experiencing is a warfare between two unequal parties. The inner man, who you really are in Christ, and the flesh. Which is being renewed, which is being transformed, and this is where. So now the picture. So think of the picture of this, this, the sort of the blackness of the first of the first picture, corrupt with sin. Well, in the inner core of who you are, you have been washed clean, and now the flesh. Is still, you know, i thinking up the place. But now, as the Holy Spirit seeds new thoughts and new ideas into your mind and heart, now you begin to think God's thoughts after him. And now your thoughts, words, and deeds begin to become more and more what they should be. And so that's the basic picture of of this, this new humanity. And, 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 although, the thing that you need to keep in mind is, that if, because, you know, the focus here is on, okay, you are, you are in Christ, but remember that the, the you is plural. So it's not just me in Christ, it's that we are in Christ. And so that, that, that's also part, really important to what Paul's doing in our passage for talking about how the body is connected to Christ because he is the head of the body. So I just I, I just wanted to give you that picture so that we can understand what Paul's doing and then he'll continue to explain this uh, as we keep going through. Because we saw last week that we've been circumcised in Christ. We've our old self has been snipped off by Christ through our baptism into his death, just as he was cut off on the cross. So also we have been cut off in the sense we have died to sin with Christ, being buried with him in baptism, in which we were also raised with him through faith in the working of God. So our baptism shows us that Christ has made us alive with him and that he has forgiven all our sins. And he's done this by making a public spectacle of Satan and all the idols, the principalities and powers, the basic principles of this world. So who are you in Christ? You are now new in him. You are no longer who you once were. And and then in verse 8, Paul had had warned against the the hollow and deceptive philosophy, those things which are opposed to Christ. And so having restated the central theme of his book, sort of who Christ is and who you are in Christ, Paul is now ready to go after the the hollow and deceptive philosophy that he had mentioned in verse 8. In one sense, anything that is opposed to Christ can be called a hollow and deceptive philosophy. But Paul is is dealing with a particular problem in, in, in the Colossian church. and so, But that's, that particular problem has all sorts of ways that it manifests in our own day as well. I mean, sure, for them, it's Jewish rituals, verse 16, Jewish mysticism, verse 18, and various restrictions bordering on asceticism, verses 21 and 22, but Paul's response to all three is a, is a very Christ-centered response. Well, those Old Testament rituals were a shadow of what we have in Christ. Verse 17, Christ is the real thing. And the body of Christ connects us to Christ himself. So who needs this fantastical mysticism? Who needs it when you have Christ, the real thing? And thirdly, you have died to the world with Christ, so what good is asceticism when you have Christ, the real thing? So let's look at each of these three things, and we, I first referred to it as don't get lost in the shadows. Paul says, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or, or Sabbaths. There are people telling the Colossians they have to keep the old food laws of the Old Testament. And Paul is saying, no, the old requirements of the law have been fulfilled in Christ. Jesus taught us that it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him. It is the things that come out of the mouth that make us unclean. Uh, There were people telling the Colossians they must keep the various holy days of the Old Testament. And Paul says, no, I mean, you can keep them if you want to, but they're no longer required by God for all. Uh, Something you see regularly, actually, even in the book of Acts, was that the apostles themselves, being Jews, generally continued keeping the old feasts, which was fine. There was no problem with continuing the old feasts. But the point Paul's making is this is not required. Certainly Gentiles don't have to start doing it. And Paul himself, when he was away from Jerusalem, doesn't seem to have prioritized it either. But when he was in Jerusalem and around a lot of Jewish Christians, he would keep the feasts together with other Jewish Christians. Because Paul's point is, these are, these are now, in, you might say, things indifferent. They are, they are shadows of Christ. And as shadows, they're good things. They're not bad things. They're, they're good things. But we need to keep, keep clear that these are not things that God requires of his church. And again, think about the way the shadow works. You have a body that casts a shadow, and so where does the light come from? If, if 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 Paul is saying that the shadows are pointing back through the Old Testament and Christ is right here in the middle of history, then the light comes from the eschaton. The light comes from the new creation, shining back upon the body of Christ, the the incarnation of the Word who became flesh, and that is what casts the shadow back into the Old Testament. Now, if you think about that picture, uh, we have the reality of Christ being with us and in us, but, but Paul will say in 1 Corinthians that we, we look into a glass darkly. So think about the picture here. You've got a body that casts a shadow backwards in, into the Old Testament. Then what happens if you're on the other side of the body? It's not shadows that you're seeing. But because you're, you're, so, you're now on this side with the light still coming from here and Christ in the middle of history here, that's why Paul will talk about it as seeing in a glass darkly, because it 's not a shadow. it's just we don't yet see all things clearly. We, are, we, have, we have more light, but we are still pilgrims journeying toward the land of light. And all the while we travel with that light in Christ. There is an already in that Christ has already come, but there's also the not yet when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And because of that, that means that, that we don't need all the complications of the Old Testament feasts, but we still need something like that. So Christ has given us one feast, the Lord's Supper we don't have lots and lots of holy days, but we do have the Lord's Day. Paul says, don't let anyone judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths. These matters are not salvation matters. If you think about in our day, the sorts of things that would fit into this would be, do you drink alcohol or not? Paul would say, don't let anyone judge you either way. Do you, do you observe various cultural holidays? Do you, do you have a Christmas tree? Paul would say, don't let anyone judge you with respect to these things. You could, if you want to, you don't have to. There are no, these are these are the sort of ordinary things that people do, which is fine, but they're not salvation matters. So some, some would say, oh, but notice he also says Sabbath. Does that mean that Sabbath keeping is optional? Of course. You don't have to keep Saturday holy. The Colossians are being told that observance of Jewish holy days was necessary—festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths—that pretty well, pretty well summarizes the Old Testament festival calendar. And in the early church, they they called Sunday the Lord's Day, not the Sabbath, in order to avoid the confusion. Because in a world where there where where Jews were still more prominent than Christians, if you tried to call the Lord's Day the Christian Sabbath, people would be like, "The huh?" Because Shabbat means seventh day. And, well, Sunday is the first day of the week or the eighth day. So it, to say to call it the Christian Sabbath would be a nonsense phrase in the first century. Now, so instead, what you see in the early church is they refer to the Lord's Day as the Christian feast day. Now, if you think back to what we heard in Leviticus 23, what are the things that you hear about a feast day from the Jewish perspective? Well, feast days are days when you don't do your ordinary work, when you observe your religious observances, and you, you, it's a day for basically, might say, rest and worship. Now, I once—I once, there was a candidate for the ministry who was sort of all adamant about how, oh, the early church did not practice the, 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 the Lord's Day as a Christian Sabbath. They, they, they all, it was a Christian feast day. And I asked him, are you aware of what the Romans thought about feast days? And He was like, "Hmm, I've never looked into that. <laughs> Might want to." So I pointed them to some sources. Cicero talks about this in the Laws. What is a feast day for a Roman? It's a day when the courts are closed, all ordinary business ceases, the servants are all given a day off, and you go about your and you have religious exercises and you hang out with your friends. A Roman feast day and a Jewish feast day, for that matter, a Jewish Sabbath, look an awful lot alike. Now. It's true that the Pharisees had added a bunch of extra things for the Sabbath. But the Pharisaic Sabbath is not what the Old Testament said. So the Old Testament Sabbath is, it's, is, is, is actually looks an awful lot like a Roman feast day. And so when the early church looks at Sunday as a Christian feast day, it's basically a day where you take your... You, know, you don't do your ordinary work. You focus on um, religious services You and you give the people who work for you the day off. It's like, and when this candidate for the ministry looked at that, he was like, oh. <laughs> In a sense, so they don't use the phrase Christian Sabbath, but that's exactly how they describe what the Lord's day is. Because Paul is not saying that the fourth commandment can get thrown out the window. He's saying that the Jewish seventh day Sabbath is no longer necessary. Just as Paul has declared that our circumcision, the circumcision of Christ, takes place in baptism and so renders circumcision unnecessary, so also he declares the old Jewish Sabbaths are unnecessary. The reality is found in Christ. The one who casts the shadow is the one who called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus taught us that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that's where God made us, to work for six days. And by work, I don't just mean what you do for pay, but it's all the things you do to hold body and soul together. Work includes the things you do around the house, in the community, as well as the things you do for pay. Because God himself set us a pattern and showed us what we need because as he rested on the seventh day, so also he calls us to rest one day out of seven. Actually, one of my favorite articles on the subject came in a in an airplane magazine that I was reading on some flight or other. It was written by a secular Jew who was reflecting on the craziness of the pace that modern people keep. And he realized he needed one day a week to slow down, unplug, and turn every... Basically, So he, he wasn't any more religious than anybody else, but he realized he needed... Well, one day every week, to just turn everything off and be quiet and rest. And I was like, Yeah, that's be- I mean, that's the way that's the way God made us. This is just part of the way things are. And when we go on our breakneck pace of saying, Oh, I don't, I don't need to take a day of rest. Oh, yeah, really. But Paul says that the the details of these things, sort of which. Sort of, do you observe the Jewish calendar or not? No big deal. Do you follow the food laws? No big deal. If you want to, you're welcome to. If you don't, you're not required to. The substance is Christ. But secondly, Paul warns in verses 18 and 19 about, well, mysticism. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Uh, When it talks about worship of angels, it refers to the practice of invoking angels for help and protection against evil spirits, which was a a common feature in Jewish mysticism. But the way that Paul describes this, there's also aspects of Persian and Greco-Roman thought that, that gets woven into this. It's a, it's a combination that winds up in, in these centuries producing a wide variety of religious groups. Uh, they, they sometimes get all lumped together in the, by the term Gnosticism, uh, but there's a, a bunch of different groups that blend together aspects of Jewish, Roman, Persian thought and cr- come up with these quirky hybrids, uh, which Paul seems to recognize as happening in, in, in the Colossian region. But the same impulse exists today. I mean, these this sort of when when you when you start studying the details of these at first they oftentimes sound really weird, but then when you look at what goes on today, and when you look into the details of various New Age or or other sorts of sort of ways in which yes the spirituality that you run into as people are trying to sort of sort of reform the old druid druidic religion and things like that. Yeah, yeah, the same. The same sorts of things go on in every generation. There's no surprise, but the, the, the thing that Paul's warning about is is focusing on this, on this, this, the going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, being focused on these mystical experiences. There are people who claim that they receive direct personal revelation from God himself and they they set themselves up as teachers and prophets who, who may sound very spiritual in their words. But Paul warns that this is nothing but an individualistic form of religion which puts personal individual experience over the body because Paul has talked about Christ as the body casting the shadow. Well, but we are united to Christ We become one body with him. And Paul says that such a person has lost connection with the head. That's a strong statement. If a person has lost connection with the head, that means they're not connected to Jesus. These people have fleshly minds, Paul says. Their flesh has not been snipped away in the circumcision of Christ. They are worshiping beings other than God and they are not holding fast to Christ who is the head of the body. And Christians are members of Christ's body. And, and when, when Paul talks about this, Paul never thinks of sort of an individual Christian off by himself as being connected to Christ. It's always in the context of the church that there is no such thing as a sort of individual sort of Christian isolated from others. The body is a connected creature. Your body is connected by real physical stuff, even so, the body of Christ is held together by real people in real places, like here. It means that you and I need each other. I think sometimes when we when we talk about sort of what friendship is and what we're looking for in friendship, we oftentimes wind up talking in terms of, that's just about, oh, I'm looking for people who have similar interests to me. Well, If you have Christ in common, then you have the thing that matters most. When I first came to South Bend, I I came to a little church called Michiana Covenant PCA. (laughs) I was a graduate student at Notre Dame. And when I came to the church, in one sense, there was really nobody at this church that I really felt like I connected with. So what did I do? I connected with the people who were here because I was like, "Well, this is is where Christ has put me." So, and those those connections wound up lasting because they were built on well, who are we in Christ? Not just do we have common interests. We are dependent upon one another for our growth in the body. As Paul puts it in verse 19, the the problem with these people is they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. God causes the body to grow and therefore the body grows. It's not that God causes individuals to grow and therefore the body grows. No, it's the whole body growing together think about what happens if a part of the body grows all by itself. If your foot grew an extra 10 inches, then you have two feet. But, um, sorry. Um, But, you know, body parts don't grow in isolation from the body. You know, when things grow in isolation, what do we call that? Cancer. But, on the other hand, you know, imagine what would happen if part of your body ceased to function. I mean, if your liver ceases to function, you've got a real problem. I mean, if the hair on the left side of your head stops growing, that's, that's awkward. But you know, that's... But individual spiritual growth isn't actually spiritual growth. It's not the Holy Spirit's work. If you think that you are growing in isolation from the body, that's actual, actually of spiritual deformity. Because Paul says that the body grows with the growth that is from God and there was a time when I, I longed for sort of direct revelation from God. I, I had a charismatic phase in my younger years. I like to think that I was a prophet and I, I used to go back in the mountains and wait for revelations from God and as I as I look back on those those times I I wound up. Wasting time seeking private mystical experiences rather than be connected to the body. There are times for going out into the wilderness, into the desert, to be with God. Absolutely, but to seek sort of, sort of private mystical experience that's not connected to the body. It's one reason why I love the Desert Fathers. People sometimes think, oh, the Desert Fathers—they were going off to be, by the—they understood. They were, they were doing this for the sake of the city, for the sake of the church. They understood that the point of their battling the demons in the wilderness was actually for the sake of the body. And they never thought of themselves as being detached from the body and on their own. You see, God reveals his will to those who walk in his ways and seek the good of the body of Christ. So let's not get caught up in sort of individualistic emphasis on our own private experience. But let us get caught up in the love and fellowship which comes from nourishing one another in the body of Christ. And, and we do this sort of, sure, what we do on Sunday morning is the, is the, is the foundation of that. Uh, but I, I'm really encouraged by what I've seen over the years because there is so much more of the one-anothering happening today. I, mean, I went and looked back at the, the, the last time I preached through Colossians, and the last time I preached through Colossians, I was exhorting Mishiana Covenant to start doing these sorts of things. I'm just really encouraged to be able to say, now I can say, please continue them. But also, the, the caution I would give you is, it's really easy to let sort of fellowship become just a hanging out with people I like. The challenge I would give you is make sure that your fellowship is a fellowship oriented around Jesus Christ so that his word and spirit is what is building and growing your fellowship. Because whatever times you have with one another, if it's just hanging out and having a good time, well, I mean, it's a good thing to hang out and have a good time. But how are we growing in the grace, the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? And how are we praying for one another? Because those are the things that will knit us together the way that Paul talks about with with the joints and ligaments growing with the growth that is from God. Bodybuilding is hard work, but it is our calling in Christ. Now, Paul's third point gets at the danger of of thinking that, that the answer to everything is rules. Because he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, verse 20, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The death Christ died, he died to sin, and therefore you died to sin with him as well. Sin has no more power over you than it has over Christ, so why would you need these man-made regulations? Following rigorous rules are utterly worthless, Because they do not touch the heart. If you try to deal with sin from the outside, you will fail. Because the real problem is your heart. It's what Jesus said when he talked about food. It's not what goes into the person that defiles us. It's what comes out. Paul is, in one sense, you could say, fighting against legalism. What what, what is legalism? I, I once heard somebody say that a legalist is anyone who is stricter than you are. Sometimes that's the way we tend to think, but that's not what legalism is. Legalism is the belief that following law is going to win favor with God. The idea that there's something I can do to please God and make him like me better. Sometimes it takes the form of saying, once you're saved by grace, now you need to respond with obedience in order to please God. Legalism can be the idea that if you have your devotional time every day, God will reward you. Or if you serve others, you'll be blessed. Or if you hold your tongue in check, God will be pleased with you. That's all rot. God will reward you because you are in Christ. God will bless you because you are indwelt by his spirit who has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Of that in Ephesians. So let's just think about that for a moment. If God has already blessed you with every blessing, every spiritual blessing in Christ, what is left for God to bless you with? Remember, it was every spiritual blessing. What's left? Hmm. This is where God could not possibly be any more pleased with you than he already is because you have been united to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean, oh, that I can sin as I please. No, that's not how you show your gratitude to God. But rather, there is simply no way that we can obtain God's favor. That's why the cross is at the center of that diagram I gave you. The cross is at the center of that diagram because Jesus is the one who paid for our sins. Jesus is the one who has reconciled us to God. Jesus is the one who has made us his own people, and has brought us to God. The danger of legalism is that it turns into the self-imposed religion which Paul condemns. Yes, you should seek others and put their interests ahead of your own, but not out of a idea that, oh, then God will approve of me. You've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You've already died and been raised with him. What more could you possibly want? So serve one another. Put their interests ahead of your own, out of your thankfulness and humility. The regulations which Paul rejects, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, are often exactly what, in some circles, we think about when we think about the Christian life. Oh, Christians are people who don't drink, don't smoke, don't watch R-rated movies, don't gamble, don't swear... I'm not saying that, oh, let's go do all these things. uh, That's not the point. Paul is saying, those things are external. You could avoid every single one of them and still be a pagan. Mormons are well known for their moral lifestyle, yet they are as far from Christ as Muslims who also avoid such things. Because the Christian life, in its essence, is not about externals. Legalism sets forth a list of do's and don'ts and as long as you pass, you're okay. Christianity looks at the heart. Paul says that legalism has no value against the indulgence of the flesh because legalism says, okay, stay away from these things. But the flesh is still going the same direction as it was. Where is your heart? What is it that matters most to you? Because if you are a new creature in Christ, then your life will reflect it not in this self-imposed religion, but in your love toward others, in your true humility and gentleness of spirit. Paul says that our lives must reflect the the attitude of Christ. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Your attitude in your home, your work and in the church must be filled with the fruit of the spirit because where the spirit has restrained the working of the flesh on the inside, the externals will take care of themselves. Paul objects to the idea that God is pleased by our eating special foods and observing special days. Paul objects to the idea that God desires to us to have mystical religious experiences all by ourselves. And Paul objects to the idea that we can please God by following man made rules about worship or piety. And Paul puts in the place of all of this one thing You have died with Christ. You have been raised to newness of life in his body. So be who you are in Christ. We have a lot of desire for authenticity these days. Be yourself. Be true to you. Be who you are. Now, the problem is, over here, you know, we're sinners, and so be who you are. <laughs> There's a lot of people out there being who they are who. That's not helping things. So let me add two words. Be yourself in Christ. Be true to who you are in Christ. Be who you are in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us because we are forgetful and sometimes we're just darn rebellious. And so we pray that you would have mercy on us, that you would shine upon us the light of your countenance, that we might see Jesus, that we might hear his word, that we might believe your promises. Have mercy, Lord, and forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for not loving you, for not loving one another. And help us by your spirit to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Free we pray in his name. Amen.